This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to Novel Dialogue, a podcast sponsored by the Society for Novel Studies and produced in partnership with Public Books, an online magazine of arts, ideas, and scholarship. I'm Sarah Wasserman, one of your hosts this season. On this podcast, we bring scholars and novelists together to talk about how novels work, how they're written, read, studied, and remembered. But this season is a bit different as we're focusing on how novels get translated. All season long, we're bringing together novelists, translators, and critics to talk about what happens when novels and novelists move from one language to another. Today, I have the honor of welcoming Professor Brent Edwards and translator and publisher Jean-Baptiste Naudy. They'll be talking today about the novels of Claude McKay, the Jamaican-American writer whose poetry and novels shaped the Harlem Renaissance and offered readers a complex treatment of race, place, and politics. Brent and Jean-Baptiste will be talking about translating McKay into French, sometimes translating McKay out of French, and also about translating McKay's scholarship into French. Brent Edwards is the Peng Family Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University. He is the author of the prize-winning Epistrophes, Jazz, and the Literary Imagination, and the Practice of Diaspora, Literature, Translation, and the Rise of Black Internationalism. With Jean-Christophe Cloutier, Brent edited Claude McKay's Amiable with Big Teeth. His many translations include essays, poems, and fictions by authors such as Edouard Glissant, Aimé Césaire, Jacques Derrida, Jean Baudrillard, and Michel Leris. In 2020, Brent was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and he is joining us today from New York. Jean-Baptiste Naudy is a publisher and translator from Paris, France. He translated to French African Journey by Aslanda Goodrovison in 2020 and Amiable with Big Teeth uh, by Claude McKay in 2021. He has also recently translated An Archaeology of Holes, a short story collection by the South African writer Stacey Hardy, which came out with his publishing house Rotbocrique. He co-founded Rotbocrique in 2021. It's an independent publishing house based in Set. Jean-Baptiste is a man of many talents and has played a number of roles in the past. He's been a bookseller, he founded Société Réaliste, an art cooperative, and as an artist, he's exhibited his own work in exhibitions around the world. And he joins us today from an undisclosed location in France. So thank you for joining us. Um, My real job here is to get out of the way and let the two of you do the talking. Um, So I'd like to begin just by posing a very general question to both of you, which is, What is it that drew you initially to Claude McKay? And perhaps more importantly, what is it that keeps drawing you to his work? Well, thanks. Um, It's a pleasure to do this and fun to to be able to chat with Jean-Baptiste about McKay and about our 
continuing transatlantic <laughs> dialogue around McKay's work. I guess I'd I'd say from my own perspective, um, I was first drawn to McKay because I was attracted to as a young intellectual, even before I went to graduate school, um, attempting to to write myself, uh, but also a young expert. I lived in France before I came back to the U.S. to go to graduate school, and I was attracted to the vagabond, uh, the peripatetic nature of, of McKay's life, um, his travels, his wanderings, his errancies um, around the globe, and that he as his autobiography is titled, spent so much of his life a long way from home. Um, so that was the first to me as an expatriate for the same reason that I carried with me on the plane to Paris when I first moved to France um, in the early 1990s, James Baldwin's The Price of the Ticket, Baldwin's Complete Essays. McKay was part of the my very small <laughs> three or four book bookshelf when I moved to Paris the first time, it was one of those, he was one of the authors that I felt had to come with me. He was part of the baggage. Jean-Baptiste, what, what, what attracted you to McKay? Well, I, I discovered Mike McKay by chance, I, I guess like a lot of French readers, because uh, at the time when I was studying at the university, I was studying around uh, francophone black literature uh, I, of course, I had to work a lot around Negritude and around Aimé Césaire and Senghor and Damas, etc., and the Nardal Sisters. Not so much at that time, actually, but and uh, and and studying the, those writers, it was clear that uh, um, Black American literature had a, had a strong influence on them, and uh, that that's when I heard for the first time uh, about McKay. And when I was a student at Sorbonne, uh, actually there was only one book back by Marquet that was available in French, which was Banjo. That was just uh, retranslated at that time uh, in Marseille by a, by a Marseille uh, publisher called uh, André Dimanche. And uh, so, so it was a very specific period when, when Marquet had completely disappeared from the, from the French panorama. Uh, and uh, and and there was this effort by this Marseille publishing house to try to bring him back, and first via via the Marseille trope, actually. So 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 this idea that 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 banjo, which is set in Marseille, which is one of the most famous novels about Marseille, uh, even for French readers, I mean, could lead to to the rediscovery of Mackay in France, and actually. Uh, um, André Dimanche, this publisher, uh, some years after uh, uh, translating, retranslating and, and publishing again uh, Banjo, uh, did the same for a long way from home. So, so, so this was my first encounter with uh, with McKay, uh, and then I have to say that uh, that I was part of the, <laughs> I, I was in the middle of this wave of of renewed interest for McKay in the French readership uh, that started maybe uh, three or four years ago, something like that. And uh, of course, I mean, uh, I have to give credit when credit is due, uh, reading your book, Brent, The Practice of Diaspora, where, where the, the central chapter about McKay and, and vagabond writing was extremely powerful to me. 
and so so gave me also the urge to to go and read Mackay in English and uh, and to try also to 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 discover in Mackay in the English writing of Mackay English language writing uh, the polyphony that was at work uh, within his work the fact that uh, he was a Jamaican was of a lot of interest for me especially what what kind of approach he could have of the some kind of imperial language like English is for from a Jamaican point, point of view uh, compared to what happened to the French language at the same period uh, under 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 the the, the eye and the scope of uh, West West Indian writers or African writers how they used the imperial language in a certain way and I was willing to try to see and to detect in in the in the way Mackay approach uh, uh, novel writing or poetry of course uh, the the same the same problem. The French are, are telling themselves a story about uh, race relations, uh, a story in which the American experience and specifically the African-American experience has a, has a very important part. So, so the United States played the role in the French imaginary of this epitome of, of, of racism. Uh, so, so this kind of, of definitive example of what uh, anti-blackness is, and uh, the fascination of the French for African-American literature and for African-American, let's say, culture in general, uh, is very much related to the denial of a specific French racism. And, uh, and there is a part of the story uh, of African-American writers in France that, 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 that they can interpret in this way. So they, they keep on feeling that if all those very important writers from Mackay to Baldwin to Chester Himes and even very important figures like Nina Simone and very key figures of the African-American culture of the 20th century came to France, it was supposedly because France was a less racist country than the United States, than such things that, as, as anti-Blackness could not exist uh, in, a, in our country. And, uh, and so I think that it's a, it's a very crucial uh, aspect if, if one wants to understand why McKay now has such an important, uh, let's, say re, let's say, renaissance in France. Yeah, it strikes me that there's an interesting, you could call it a misrecognition of McKay as African-American in the way that uh, a French readership takes him up and a French publishing industry takes him up. One of the things I write about in my diaspora book is the excerpt from Banjo that's published in Légitime Défense, the, the incendiary journal put out by a group of Martinican students in the early 1930s. And they title this excerpt from Banjo, this book by a Jamaican author about Black communities in Marseille. They title it, L'étudiant entier vu par noir américain. So the Caribbean student as seen by a black American. And they miss in this very interesting, but very symptomatic way, the fact that the main character who's featured in this excerpt, um, because the excerpt is a, from a chapter where the main character meets a Martinican student, um, the main character in the novel, in both of McKay's first two novels, in Home to Harlem and Banjo, is Haitian, Ray. 
Um, so what you're actually getting in McKay is a much more complex and much more critical portrait of inter-imperial dynamics and even inter-francophone dynamics where we have a French-Caribbean but Haitian <laughs> character and Ray confronting a French-Caribbean Martinican, um, still a colonial subject, um, uh, figure in the student that he's talking to. And the French interestingly missed that or allied that in making McKay uh, uh, representative of the Harlem Renaissance. It used to be, I mean, maybe I should ask you, Jean-Baptiste, what if you had a conversation with uh, with Place, with the with the publisher about this? It used to be that that books would say, I think it's changed now, but it used to be that books in France translated American books that were translated in French would say traduit de l'américain, so translated from American English as opposed to traduit du, I think it used to say britannique, uh, from British English. And yours, your version of Amiable with Big Teeth, I think it's now the convention that it says traduit de l'anglais, and then in parentheses, États-Unis. So translated from English, United States. But even that, there's something complex going there because that little prefatory frame um, put up at the front of the book uh, says that there's a certain kind of English that's moving, that's being carried over. When, of course, with a novel like Banjo or even a book like uh, Amiable with Big Teeth, which is set in New York, but equally involves diasporic communities, involves Ethiopians interacting with uh, with Black folks of Caribbean descent uh, who have moved from the South to the North, various kinds of Englishes. And there's an interesting kind of fudging of that. Did you did you talk about that with Cyril, with the publisher, when you were uh, when you were working on your translation? Well, I I insisted on uh, on presenting McKay as a Jamaican writer. So I know that at a certain point in his life he had the, the American nationality, but but the fact that he was from Jamaica uh, uh, for me was crucial, and the fact of using this expression, which is it's a standard in French now, like translated from English and between parentheses, uh, United States, uh, in a certain way opens up a little this this idea if you compare to translated from from American, because we can say that in French, de l'Américain. Um, so so because because McKay, of course, was uh, educated uh, in, a, in a British colony, so and, and was raised in a British colony. So so so. So for me, the fact that he was a Jamaican was very important uh, in, in um, presenting him to the French uh, uh, readership. That has a very clear idea, maybe a little bit too clear, about what the Jamaican is supposed to be. Uh, uh, and that is something very different from an American. So, 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 but I think it's very interesting what you say about the fact that in Legitime Défense, he was presented as a, Ray, the Asian character, was, was presented, a, was mis, mis, misread as, a, as an American, because I think it has a lot of relation, I mean, it relates to a, a certain way uh, this international blackness has been constructed from the point of view of the French Empire. So it was very important for me in terms of of uh, this translation to to insist on the fact that uh, Mackay was a Jamaican, 
especially because people that know McKay in France, they know him as an African-American writer in France. So, uh, and not so much as a West Indian. And, uh, and, and then regarding to, to, to the way of mentioning the language of translation, I, I would have considered a little bit excessive to call it translated from uh, Jamaican English. This would have been a little bit too much, uh, especially because McKay wrote in Jamaican English, in Patois, uh, a book of poetry. It was the first book ever published in, in Patois, actually. So, so this would be some kind of, let's say, uh, an excessive way of, of understanding it. So, and, and I guess it's interesting to have a, a Jamaican writer writing in English in the American context after being in Europe. So th th this, I mean, looks a lot like McKay, like something very, very peripatetic, you said, a very vagabond way of understanding language and identities. Yeah, I guess what fascinates me about it and what seems interestingly off is that to me, McKay, going back to uh, what draws me to McKay, um, if anything, McKay is about a confrontation among Englishes, all of McKay. You never have just American English or just Jamaican English or just expatriate English, whatever that would be. You have Englishes. There is no just U.S. English or just uh, uh, English, English, British English. Um, that's what I find fascinating about McKay and in Banjo in the the story swapping scenes and the arguments um, on the quay in Marseille. Part of what you're hearing is this 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 stew of languages, of versions of English and other languages coming into contact. Um, so it's an interesting thing to try to put him in a national box, this writer in particular, to say this is this book is American English in particular. I'm also fascinated by what that does to the way McKay becomes influential for, going back to what I was saying about Légitime Défense, for the negritude generation, for the Black French intellectuals, for the writers who become the so-called fathers of negritude who read McKay and take him as a tutelary influence, as kind of um, a pedagogical uh, text or set of texts around what it means to think Black consciousness. Um, but they're reading McKay through this particular lens that warps him in interesting ways in a way that becomes formative. It's not exactly a right or wrong thing. It's about uh, the way something becomes formative as it moves. So I again, in, in, the, in my diaspora book, I talk about the fact that the first translator of Banjo, um, Paul Vaillant-Couturier, is a French communist politician, actually, um, in the early 1930s. And every time McKay uses words like folk and common people, Vaillant Couturier uses in French, le proletariat, the proletariat. He translates uh, some of the terms that McKay uses quite often. Um, of course, proletariat is a word in English, but McKay writes words like folk and common people all the time. And if you read that early version of Banjo, uh, Vaillant Couturier translates it in that direction. It's not so, It's not so much about getting it wrong, it's more, to me, the interesting question is, uh, what does it mean that this is the McKay with le proletariat, with the proletariat injected, that Leopold Sangor, that Aimé Césaire, that they're reading McKay in French, and this is the McKay that they're being influenced by. 
one example I in in amiable with big teeth that I was going to ask you about Jean Baptiste is it's in the chapter the emperor's letter. It's when the Ethiopian envoy Lij Alamaya has so he's gone to Harlem to try to raise support and to raise funds for the Ethiopian cause after Ethiopia has been invaded uh, by Mussolini's Italy. And he has a letter from the emperor, from Haile Selassie, authenticating him as an envoy, saying, I've sent you as my envoy to raise money. And he goes to this gathering and shows uh, the letter and it gets stolen by the, the bad guy of the book, the evil communist. <laughs> um, uh, but this is a detail from that chapter. They're chatting about it. Lij Alamaya pulls out the letter there's an English guy, and it's interesting, going back to what we were saying about McKay being a British imperial subject, that McKay makes this person a white Englishman um, rather than any of the other characters who are in the room. And a white Englishman whose name is Pickett, uh, Aubrey Pickett, they're having this conversation, and uh, the African-American woman who's kind of uh, chaperoning the Ethiopian envoy, Alamaya, has brought him late because she says, you always show up at parties late. You've got to be late. And it's the English guy who says when they come in the door, oh, I see already you're keeping CPT. And I was really interested to see what you do with that because CPT to me is a very African-American, it's a very U.S. Black English idiom, color people time, people's time. And it's hard to handle in French because there's not there's not quite an equivalent to it. And what you what you ended up putting is uh, uh, je vois que vous êtes à l'heure africaine. You're keeping African time. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure how else you could do it because you can't just do a literal translation of the idiom, which loses its idiot that it has a specific meaning in African-American vernacular English. Um, but African time is tricky too, because what happens in the scene is, is this, this tension between the meaning of colored African <laughs> and black, because uh, Lij Alamaya, the Ethiopian, is standing there and thinking, well, I think of myself as African, but I don't quite think of myself as colored. So why is this white English guy telling me I'm keeping colored people's time? I'm African, but I'm not colored is actually what the, the, the way the passage unfolds. So it's a very hard passage to translate. I'm not sure it's about, it's about finding some, uh, as though there could be some perfect or exact equivalent. The, the whole point is that there is not an exact equivalent. And in the original passage, part of the dynamic is that there is not exact equivalence, right? Lij Alamaya is not quite getting it. It's CPT is not, he doesn't quite get that. And it's the white English guy trying to pretend to be cool, who's saying, yeah, I know what CPT means. It's the white guy who's throwing this black vernacular term into the conversation. But the whole conversation in English, in the novel, is about this linguistic discrepancy, that idioms don't necessarily carry over that even in Anglophone context, they're not necessarily transparent. So it's not about some right version of that that Jean-Baptiste could have found. It's about the work of these discrepancies that travel and reshape things in these very interesting ways. 
I, I wonder when well, you were laughing as I mentioned it. I wonder you must have wrestled with it. I wonder how how you came up with the solution you came up with. And, and you have to you have to say that that right after this mentioning CPT, uh, uh, Aubrey Pickett, this Englishman, uh, is turning to African Americans that are here and saying, "Oh, but you should explain him what what CPT is." And none of the African Americans that are here understand what that means. <laughs> they don't know. So they don't know because they are. From the upper class, let's say part of, of Harlem, and, and for them, it's uh, I mean they miss the point. So 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 my well, I completely agree with what you say, and, and in this precise uh, case, uh, my point was not to let's say use uh, a literal translation that could have worked in a way because French people now have an understanding of African American culture that could have made it understandable, let's say. Uh, but I wanted to, to reproduce the, the, the colonial gaze that was at stake here. And, and if you would have compared in time, you know, like, like in, the, in a French-speaking context, what would uh, 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 an Englishman like that say to an African in France uh, while he would be with French-speaking African people or West Indians, uh, it would have been this. So African time, l'heure africaine, le temps africain. Uh, and so I, I, I inverted the effect. So in a way, it's not uh, aggregating Lige Alamaya to this African-American concept of, or, or, or let's say American context of uh, CPT, but it's agglomerating in, in this version, this French version. So those African-Americans to a colonial African uh, understanding. So, so they are reduced. I mean, their blackness is there reduced to their Africanness. So they are, they are uh, in, in a way associated to something that, that is completely uh, outside of their, of their reality. Because they are absolutely not Africans, and especially compared to to this Ethiopian guy, so so this was my, my my choice to to try to keep the brutality of this pun or this joke, and that triggers a reaction. Then, because like like the Lige, the the Lige Alamaya becomes a little bit aggressive in his way. He's a very mild guy, but 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 he has some kind of reaction after after this consideration. So what most of translators do when, when it's about translating African-American vernacular English is that they use, uh, um, let's say, popular French, which sounds like actually white worker French. So 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 the question of race is where is erased there. But I think it, it's an in, in, inevitable. You, you cannot reassess the, the, the race dimension uh, while translating this, this aspect. Well, as we were talking about before, you could say that there's a McKay vogue or a wave or a resurgence or a renaissance of interest in McKay over the past couple of years. Part of that, understandably, is due to the rediscovery and first publication of these previously unknown books of Amiable with Big Teeth and with um, Romance, Romance in Marseille. Uh, so to that degree, it, 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 may, it may be uh, an understandable feature of literary history. But as Jean-Baptiste was saying earlier, 
the interesting thing is that you could say there are multiple waves. Waves aren't in literary history, in public publishing history, waves aren't permanent because publishers go out of business because things go in and out of print. So I thought that was when I was uh, starting uh, my teaching career as an assistant professor when Michel Favre translated, retranslated Banjo and A Long Way From Home. That felt like a wave right around the millennium. Um, those yeah. are 1999 and A Long Way From Home. He translated, I think, around 2001. Exactly, and I was in contact with Michel because I was doing research in France around then, and remember thinking, "Wow, here's McKay coming back into view." Waves. I think it's important to realize that waves are not permanent, and the other thing I think it's important to realize that's hard to talk about. It's interesting how difficult it is to talk about, is that chronology shifts in translation. Some things come out in sequence, but there's this interesting skewing of the chronology, a reordering of the corpus. W.E.B. Du Bois's The Souls of Black Folk wasn't translated until 1959. What does that do for French understanding of African-American racial politics? Uh, Zora Neale Hurston, Their Eyes Are Watching God, was not translated until 1996. I was just reading, it was retranslated recently, uh, Sika Fakambi's translation a couple of years ago uh, of Their Eyes Are Watching God in 2018. An extraordinary, I think as a translation, an extraordinary performance because she doesn't do what you were talking about, Jean-Baptiste. She doesn't fall into the pitfall of replicating a kind of proletarian French as a version of a vernacular French, um, of conflating race with class that way. She finds a way of inventing a vernacular that's not a West African or a Caribbean uh, French or a Creolized French, but she invents a vernacular that gets close to what Hurston does with English. But that book only came out a couple a couple of years ago. Um, Nella Larson wasn't translated until about a decade ago. Passing and Quicksand were not available in French until around 2010. Jean Toomer wasn't translated until the 1970s, came. So the what we might take for granted about the canon does not move in the chronological shape <laughs> that that we uh, that we tend to take for granted in thinking about the shape of a tradition. Jean Baptiste, I know I don't know if if you've thought about it this way, and I as in prep, in preparing for our conversation, I was just looking over um, some of the history and thinking about this in relation to McKay, because I was thinking, why? What does McKay mean now? Um, in relation to the emergence of a Black consciousness in France, beyond just the fact of the discovery of Amiable and the and the first publishing of Romance in Marseille, why is McKay, why is McKay coming back into view? Um, but then I started thinking about it and realizing that the chronology is shifting as it moves over. I don't know if you've thought about it this way, if, that, if what I'm saying makes sense. Absolutely. Uh, I would say that that the the French history with Mackay is really an history with Banjo, actually. So this book influenced a lot the Negritude movement. This book was the first one published by Mackay in France. This book was the only one that had some kind of public recognition, uh, much more than Home to Harlem or, or Banana Bottom. And of course, it's the opposite than the American context, where Home to Harlem was the the, the main book 
in the main novel of uh, of Mackay. And when 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 Home to Harlem was translated uh, in France in uh, in 1932, uh, the approach was really so in this this kind of proletarian literature framing. Uh, let's have a, some kind of exotic view on uh, uh, this African. Uh, district or black district in New York, and the title chosen for for the translation at the time uh, was uh, Quartier Noir, Black District. Uh, uh, so, so, so there was a kind of exotic approach of it. And then in, in 2021, so last year, uh, uh, there were those two publications of uh, of unknown books by Mackay. So, so Romance in Marseille and uh, Amiable with Big Tears, and and. So, so this is kind of a funny situation. So you can understand in the American context, everybody has the access to the whole oeuvre of Mackay, and suddenly two unknown books appear and are published, and they are in this kind of continuity. In France, it's completely different. So, so nobody was reading Mackay except Banjo, that had this, this specific status. And then suddenly those two unknown books by, by Mackay uh, happened to be published. But all the other books of Mackay are completely unknown as well, you know. And so now starts a new trend because of the success of uh, of uh, Romance in Marseille and of the recognition of 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 uh, Amiable with Big Teeth. Uh, and now they start republishing the whole oeuvre. No. So about so so that's interesting about chronology and uh, and and uh, publishing edition and publishing history, and about the the very interest. Uh, uh, the, the new this renewed interest in Mackay, I think it's it's very very much related to to contemporary issues and political issues of, of our days, because for some years now uh, uh, the anti-racist movement in France has been um, let's say strengthened, uh, very much politicized, very much uh, in a lot of uh, positive and 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 productive way radicalized. And so, 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 so people, militants or not, uh, are are looking for sources and and uh, and cultural elements on which to build. And uh, the very specific, well, and and to that extent, the history of the African American political movement has always been very influential in France to that uh, that aspect. Very interesting to see the influence of Fanon on the Black Panther and and recipro- reciprocally uh, how the Black Panther shaped. Uh, a lot of racial uh, consciousness and understanding of political issues in France in the 70s, 80s, and uh, and and so so there is some kind of 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 looking after those those key figures uh, of uh, of of anti-racist uh, of the anti-racist corpus. Oh, it's it, I'll add just one thing. Um, I agree with everything you said, uh, but the other thing I'd add is that. It's interesting to think about McKay's work and especially um, these recent republications as a Marseille-focused corpus. So it's giving, in the French context, it's giving a vision of a French cosmopolitanism, a French worldliness that's insistently Mediterranean. I mean, yes, it's about the African diaspora. It's about vagabonds and dockers and wanderers meeting up on the docks. Um, on the quays in Marseille, but that it's Marseille, not Paris. And McKay, as we know, was uh, really did not care for Paris. Uh, he spent some time there, but he was not attracted to the cafe life, the dilettante life of uh, the Parisian 
um, uh, sidewalk scene. So in the French context, it, it gives an interesting counterpoint to uh, Marseille famously is always the other city, the alternative to Paris, since the French conception of itself is so centralized, the metropole is so capital focused, that McKay is a Marseille focused France, I think is is part of the mix that's really interesting. Yeah, I would say I would say to that extent that so, so we had a, some kind of political debate last year, because so as you might know, we have something called the Pantheon, where uh, we put the ashes of uh, uh, important people uh, as defined by the French government. And so uh, last year, as some kind of answer to uh, to the current rise of the anti-racist movement, which is strongly opposed, of course, to our government. Uh, so the government had this brilliant idea to put in the, the pantheon uh, uh, Joseph, Josephine Baker, uh, which is the embodiment of, for them at least, of this African-American exile to Paris, you know, and this refuge uh, far away from segregation in the land of the free or freedom that Paris is supposed to be. And uh, and that's interesting uh, to that extent that I, I think McKay also, uh, in a way, uh, the reason why he, he chose Marseille, so it's probably for, for very uh, uh, practical reason that he, he, was, he didn't have no money, so he couldn't really stay in Paris. It was very difficult for him at that time, and he had some connection that led him to, to the south of France. But also because in Marseille, he, he met with what was of interest for him at that period, which was this colonial diaspora. Uh, th that Marseille is the embodiment. In, in France, like for example, we have various sayings about Marseille that 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 pretends that Marseille is an African city. Is is the beginning of Africa, you know? In the in the in the colonial conception of, of space, uh, because it's a colonial harbor and open to to North Africa. Uh, uh, it's the first step to Africa. Well, I feel like the two of you have, I don't know, for me, sketched this McKay multiverse would be the word of, of, of the moment, but that there are so many McKays and so many Englishes and so many sites uh, that the work touches on and, and convenes upon. Um, and of course, we could talk for so many more minutes, um, but it's it's my job to sort of wrap things up by asking you our podcast signature question. Um, and this season, it's about translation. And I think it will actually return us to some of the things that, that we were talking about earlier in the show. Um, and so ironically, in the season about translation, it's a question about what defies translation. And, and it's a question I'm sure you've heard before, which is, is there a word or a concept that you consider untranslatable or very difficult to translate? <laughs> It's it's it would be an entirely uh, other conversation, um, which we probably don't have time to have. Um, I I admit to some frustration with the untranslatability debates, uh, because to me, even if we read that work on untranslatability, the theorists who introduce the term define it. it, it it's it's admittedly openly um, a catechesis. It's a misnomer. It's a word used misleadingly because untranslatability, as Cassin defines it, doesn't mean you can't translate it. It means you 
keep trying to translate it. It's the word that you keep coming back to, that you keep wrestling with. And that, to me, is the point, although I wouldn't call it untranslatability because it's not, it's exactly not untranslatability, untranslatable. It's the thing that you have to keep translating, retranslating, um, keep working at. As a translator, untranslatability is, is, is perplexing and, and uh, simply unacceptable. As a translator, Jean-Baptiste, I think, will agree, you don't have the option of untranslatability. You can cushion, you can graft, you can contextualize, you can provide a glossary, a footnote, uh, you can put a word in bra brackets, you can show some of the difficulties of translation, but you can't not translate. As a translator, you're in the room, you're in the pages of the book to carry over. So you have to find a solution. Um, if you don't believe, as I was saying before, that the task of the translator is to find some pristine, perfect one-to-one -one correspondence between original and translation, then it's not a matter of uh, fidelity. It's not a matter of a perfect match. It's a matter of the work you do when you carry it over and inherently, unavoidably change it in the process. Uh, but you don't have the option of saying, I prefer not to, <laughs> in Bartleby's phrase. Uh, you got to find a solution. As a translator, you're doing, uh, when I was translating Michel Eris, there were particular phrases I struggled with. Um, we know that idiomatic phrases, that jokes, that they're particular registers of language that are hard to translate. But you don't have the option of just not doing it or saying that's untranslatable. You've got to find a way to do it. Um, so to me, the, the term, I don't find the term helpful opening up a space of questioning because it doesn't get you to the real work of translation, which is the task of facing the necessity and impossibility of translation always going together that's that's my answer that's, that's as quick an answer as i can give <laughs> yeah uh, I, I can make a kind of double answer for, for, for myself we were talking about the wretch of the earth by fanon and uh, i find very interesting that uh, in the english translation of fanon uh, the term blackness happens a lot it is reiterated a lot and this word does not exist in French. So the translator to English chose uh, to, to amalgamate things that Fanon were, were saying to this very English language concept of blackness. And the other way, when we have to translate books that deal with blackness, uh, we are struggling trying to find a uh, something instead of, instead of blackness. So some translators do not translate it, which is not a solution for me, of course. Like, like uh, as Brent just said, uh, as a translator, you have to do something. And, and, and uh, so, but there are so many, so many options and so many ways of, of uh, translating blackness. There is no equivalent, no good solution. So it's always the, the best error you can make. Something like that. So to my I go like to my second point, which is actually a, a reference to 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 Brent's book, The Practice of Diaspora. But there is a whole part, very beautiful and, and mesmerizing for me, about a French word called décalage. Décalage. 
So a, a word that is not translatable in English uh, and it is absolutely crucial to the understanding of the practice of translation. So this décalage, uh, so means lagging something or, or in a way, some kind of uh, uh, something that doesn't fit very much, uh, doesn't fit a, a, as well as it could, uh, and that is inescapable. And and translation is about that. It's about décalage. Uh, so so you have to to find uh, temporary solutions. No, and that's why retranslating is so important in a way, because of course you cannot translate Mackay the same in the thirties or in the nineties or now or in thirty years from now. So we have to keep on translating, and we are, and English translator have to keep on translating Fanon, <laughs> and uh, again and again and again to 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 reappropriate it, change it, uh, loot him in a way. So. I think that's 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 very important. Yeah, the waves have to keep keep coming, obviously. And I I really like the phrase Jean Baptiste that you offered us: the best error you can make. Um. <laughs> <laughs> and and keep following those ripples, like right because it then it it moves into it shapes the tradition of the debates and the discourse of French philosophy. Thanks, thanks to both of you. Thanks to Brent and Jean Baptiste. Uh, in addition to reading McKay which we hope you will. You can find Brent and Jean-Baptiste's books and translations online and visit Rotbocric at rotbocric.com. <laughs> um, as always, we are grateful to the Society for Novel Studies for its sponsorship, to Public Books for its partnership, and we acknowledge the support of Duke University. Hannah Jorgensen is our graduate intern and Connor Hibbard is the sound engineer. Novelists from past seasons include Chang Rae Lee, Teju Cole, Ruth Ozeki, Jennifer Egan, George Saunders, and many more. On November 17th, tune in for this season's finale in which host Arthi Vade talks with Saskia Zilokowski and Anne Goldstein, the translator of Elena Ferrante's Neapolitan Quartet. From all of us at Novel Dialogue, thanks so much for tuning in. Keep listening and keep reading.